Welcome to a new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Andy West. Uh, he's been teaching philosophy courses at City Lit since 2018, covering topics that include happiness, guilt, love, sex, and art. Uh, Andy West also teaches philosophy in prisons. He has conversations with people inside about their lives, discusses their ideas and feelings, and listens as the men and women he works with explore new ways to think about their situation. Uh, today we'll be discussing uh, Andy's new book, Out Now, The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family, and philosophy. Welcome, Andy. Hi, welcome. Um, this is such a fabulous podcast. I've been listening to it over the last few days and just really enjoying the episodes. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to be here doing one. Absolutely, so man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, okay, I want to kind of start with the beginning of the book and kind of find our way through it, obviously. So the thing that fascinates me so much about it is that, and we've had countless philosophers talk about this on the show. We, well, I mean, so this episode is going to come out a little bit later with Jessica Gordon-Roth, uh, who is also a philosopher, obviously. And so we talk about sort of the, uh, I guess, academizing, right? I don't know, can't think of a better term of, but, the, but of it, right? But of philosophy, where the idea is that we take this kind of field, right, that's supposed to apply to all of us in the sense of thinking about death, thinking about our actions, whether they're moral, immoral, something in between, uh, think about sort of like generating meaning, you know, these sort of big existential ideas. And when we think about philosophy, we often think of the person in the armchair who's sitting in the classroom and, you know, they've kind of like, uh, they have like this section devoted to only them and their colleagues and everybody else is sort of left out of it, right? And then so as I'm reading the book, I find it so fascinating that it starts in the beginning with you kind of trying to assess whether or not you can take, let's say, this sort of population in prison, right? Obviously, as you begin teaching there, and you can kind of bring these philosophical ideas, these very kind of nuanced and complex ideas to them. So what I love is that the book starts off with, and again, going back to Jessica Roth, right, we started talking about uh, John Locke and this idea of what is consciousness. And so incidentally, right, and it's kind of interesting, I guess, how life works, your book starts out with that. And mm -hmm. then so you're, te you're teaching about John Locke and the concept of what is a personal identity. And I love where you're having a conversation with a gentleman, and he's saying something along the lines of like, well, you know, dumb it down, right? They try to find a way for them to understand it and not like you know don't confuse them right and so the book starts out with you having this lecture about John Locke and personal identity and saying something along the lines of like well you know personal identity is memory and having this prisoner correct you and saying uh actually no John Locke thought of it as much more than memory so I did such a great beginning right because I think what we're seeing here is the kind of humanity of these prisoners that they're not just like these you know kind of oaths who sort of just gone by and uh, you know kind of were uh, I guess you would say sort of leeches on society or whatnot like these are people who have ideas and who actually understand the complexity of these sort of highbrow ideas, right? And these highbrow, highbrow thoughts. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like going through that in the beginning of, you know, kind of when you started teaching these prisoners and having them actually sort of not only understand your ideas, but even sort of challenge you in a way and help you see things in maybe their own perspectives? Yeah, I mean, like you say, um, they've really got something to say on, on these subjects. And I, I suppose I thought of myself as a very savvy person going into prison because um, as the book is all about, my dad was in prison and so was my brother and so was my uncle. So um, when I was sort of doing my lesson plans, I was, you know, putting red lines through various parts of the text, which I thought, oh, you know, my dad wouldn't be able to understand that, you know, let's keep everything concrete let's um let's make sure we don't kind of lose anyone and then yeah um going into uh, a prison for the first time which was a high security prison people were correcting me they were saying oh you know that's not quite actually what Locke said and I think this is what Rousseau would say about that idea um and it just goes to show I think that the, the richness of that world that even someone like me who grew up visiting close relatives in prison and is very preoccupied with that space uh, um, and thinks they have a good gauge of it can be surprised, you know, they can, um, that high security prisons are, are really interesting places because they're not full of uh, people who are in for shoplifting or other kind of petty crime cycle that we have here where people keep going to prison for like six weeks two months three months six months this kind of death by a thousand cuts sort of prison sentence that I, I saw my brother getting for a decade or so when I was younger but you know people who are in for long periods and uh, doing university degrees in philosophy and um, 
and there to teach me a thing or two, you know. So um, it was quite daunting, but incredibly exciting, you know. Um, incredibly exciting to be to be out of the uh, ivory tower, as as you were talking about. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and so when you were talking to the prisoners, right, and that person first gave you that kind of, uh, this sort of corrected your understanding of Locke, right? What was that like for you, right? Did you, were you kind of like, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, I guess, was there a part of you that felt a little bit sort of guilty about sort of perceiving him in that light initially about not giving them that credit? Yeah, I've definitely had that at times. Um, uh, perhaps not on that particular occasion, but I've definitely had moments where I've, I've really underestimated someone because they're, you know, dressed in uh, prison kind of tracksuit bottoms and trousers and uh, plimp soles and the kind of standard issue stuff. Um, and I suppose that's the really, that's what kind of makes sometime for the kind of uh, the, the uh, bathos or the, the kind of comic undercutting or absurdity that sometimes happens in the book in that you'll have someone who is illiterate in the class sat next to someone with a PhD right. and you've kind of got to teach philosophy to both of them. Uh, and, you know, it's very kind of, it keeps you on your toes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Understandable. Yeah. And is it that your, your past with visiting your, your brother and father uh, in prison, is that sort of what inspire you to sort of bring philosophy to the two prisons? Uh, uh, or is there some some other sort of uh, motivation that sort of uh, brought you there? Yeah, I suppose like visiting uh, my brother inside for the first time, I was probably six and coming away from that experience. Uh, it's very, it's very eerie. It's very unsettling because you come out of the prison and then you're, you're out of the prison and everyone else is too. And life is just going on. And most people don't really know about that prison you've just been to. They, to them, it's just a kind of cinematic trope, you know, from the movies or whatever. But you do. And it's kind of like living in a town where the drains have gone, right? where there's this bad smell. And you're like, can nobody else smell that? You know, it, it sort of, I suppose it sort of corrupted uh, things for me. It, it was like, you know, there's this, there's this problem now, like, and, and why can no one else smell it? Why can nobody else see the problem? Um, so I was very preoccupied with prisons from a very young age. And then, you know, for me, they're just intrinsically philosophical spaces in that, um, you know, they're about crime and punishment and justice for one thing, but they're also about time, you know? Uh, there's people in the book who are doing 99 year sentences and we discuss things like waiting for Godot with them or Zeno's arrow uh, with a man who tallies every week he's in prison on his arm and tattooing. Um, uh, yeah, all, all these really kind of questions of freedom, questions of power, you know, it just seems like that setting kind of intensifies any kind of... Um, philosophical question and I suppose for me a lot of the things I'm interested in philosophically come from the fact that I have the background I do so free will and determinism for example like growing up watching uh, my brother kind of on heroin you know really trapped in in that cycle of addiction in prison a lot I really did kind of it really did put me in this situation where I couldn't I could see what a world without free will looked like, and I could believe that world. And, and, I, and I wondered if it sort of uh, extended outwards, you know, that it's, it's just plainer to see in someone addicted to heroin, the, the, the nature of determinism, and maybe it's a bit more complex for those of us who aren't, but are we all kind of trapped in that? And, and also I wanna kind of break out of this um, background so, does that mean I have to believe in free will? And, and so those kind of the philosophical questions that really had me by the throat were the ones that came from, you know, where I came from, uh, where, where I grew up. So, so yeah, it was kind of, I was kind of always going to teach philosophy in prison when you think about it in that mm. it, it, it's, a, it's a deep preoccupation of mine. But the setting itself, I think, is very philosophical. 
it's also the sense of right that determinism right does does your past determine your future that's so relevant to people in the prison system right i mean especially those who uh, may or may not be seeking reform i mean that that's a very important question to ask right uh, is it possible to change is it is it that is it, is my mark on society that i've already made is that going to affect me for the rest of my life will will i always be considered a prisoner will will i be able to break free of that identification of myself and be able to uh, move forward uh, is that the sort of um are, are those the sorts of things that you see prisoners sort of grappling with yeah, um, and sometimes, so it's exactly those things that I see them yeah. grappling with. And sometimes, uh, you know, the way they would think about it is totally different to the way I would think about it. So, you know, my dad was in prison. There's a lot been made here recently about how the children of prisoners are more likely to go to prison themselves, um, which may or may not be true, actually. Once you look at the empirical evidence, the sample, on which that sort of studies, those studies are based are very, very small and very particular. But, but no, nonetheless, it's a narrative. Um, and it's certainly something I grew up with that um, it's all about breaking the cycle and it's, it's, it's all about escaping a certain fate that is, you're told that will come to you. And I was teaching in one prison and uh, there was a, a man there and I knew his father because his father was in another teacher in another prison that I was teaching. Mm -hmm. So here I am, someone who has had family in prison, close family father, and I'm in prison. Only I have keys on my belt and I can let myself out at the end of the day and I'm there as a teacher. And he, he is as someone who's had a father in prison and he's in prison too. Mm -hmm. And in the book, he and I discuss uh, free will and determinism. And uh, it's quite kind of, you know, I was I was reading that back recently at an, a, a book event I was doing, and it's quite counterintuitive, like where me and him stand on that because I'm probably a free will skeptic. I think it, I think free will's possible, but it happens in like Herculean moments of strength or when all the conditions are on your side or something. Uh, but I, but I'm I'm more towards determinism than I am free will, and he was just saying, no, you have to have you have to believe in free will, you have to believe in moral responsibility, um, and yet I'm the one who would seem to have broken the cycle and demonstrated a freedom of the will, and he's mm -hmm. the one who you would say has uh, been caught up in the deterministic cycle. And I suppose that's kind of what I wanted to do with philosophy in the book. I wanted to show how those tensions between where the mind is at and where the body is at, you know, the body's in prison and the mind believes in free will and all these kind of things. And, and just how people's social context, how people's kind of need to survive might also shape what they believe. You know, I really thought in his case, it's like, he kind of has to believe in free will if he if he's going to have a chance he kind of it's it's by necessity he's he's a kind of compatibilist in a, in a sort of way yeah. yeah one of the chapters i mean I, I really appreciated a lot of them but the one i think i appreciated the most was the one on free will and determinism so what we know just from psychotherapy is that it's very hard to treat a, per, a patient who doesn't believe in free will so if they believe that their environment pretty much determines their circumstances it's sort of like you know you're hitting a head your head against the wall because you aren't going to go anywhere with that person and that person isn't going to go anywhere with treatment mm -hmm. so what i really love is that argument that you guys had about it in terms of uh when the chapter i'm referring to where there was this idea with free will is that like I am responsible for being here, right? And I love how you kind of pushed back and you said, well, you know, I mean, are you necessarily responsible for your mental health? You know, are people responsible for their addiction issues, you know, their environments, yada, yada. And then the one of the prisoners, if not multiple of them, I don't remember now, but the, you know, they kind of pushed back on you and they said something along the lines of like, well, you know, if I don't believe that I'm responsible, right, then it's like, how the hell am I going to get out of here? How am I going to change my life and how I'm going to become a different person, right? So it's like this idea of, you know, it's this William James idea of will 
willing to believe because mm -hmm. in this case when you're putting yourself in the situation that you know you think that you can get out of or you're let's say putting yourself in the mind state where you believe you can get out of your environment then the idea is that you can kind of do your time and then eventually go off into the world and hopefully you know become i don't know i guess successful whatever for lack of a better term but you can do something with your life outside of the environment that you find yourself in and so i love that on the one hand you provide them with this level this high degree of empathy and you're saying to them like no 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 guys it's not that you're just solely responsible for this i understand where you're coming from based on this environment i was in a similar environment and you know things could have easily have turned different for me or you know been different for me whereas like with you guys obviously you know maybe circumstances were a little bit harsher or you know they were a little bit tougher right but then on the other hand you have these guys who are like no i think what they're saying is that i actually prefer to believe that i have free will because this is the thing that's keeping me going yeah yeah i had a conversation with a, a student in prison recently again about those subjects and uh she just said to me i just believe in owning it right I just I, I, her, her, phrase, her exact phrase was something like i just believe in complete ownership uh and she didn't kind of get into william james when she was talking about it but she's kind of there i think that um this is kind of what i have to believe um, and I think that makes for one of the kind of interesting tensions in, in the book in that, in that I'm kind of, I think I come into prison with a very kind of, uh, with this sense that each of us could have been anyone else. You know, right. I really had that feeling with my brother. I, I kind of feel like siblings are like a, a possible, a nearby possible world for your own kind of made flesh, you know that we just compare ourselves to our siblings and uh, a lot of the time. And it kind of gave me this really strong sense of like, well, I could have been him and he could have been me and I could have been in prison 12 times like him. And, you know, and, and I kind of see a lot of the people I, I teach in prison in that way of like, you know, the margins are very small here, um, but very often they don't, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, and that's part of what they're looking for in uh, to empower themselves. And that's, yeah. a very, that's a very interesting thing, like politically to negotiate. So what do you say? What, you know, and, and that's what we try and thrash out in the book, those kind of conversations. Yeah, and it could be sort of you could kind of see how somebody could feel trapped there because I, I would even think of like conversations that I've had with my patients too, thinking about that. So it's like you're trying to kind of empathize with them on the one hand, but they're trying to tell you in some, you know, without actually telling you implicitly, they're saying like, no, no, I actually need to believe that I'm in this predicament because I got myself here. So I think there was um there was a line in the book where the person said, well, like, who made me take heroin? I took heroin. I chose to take heroin. And, you know, in some sense that that's true. And in some sense, you know, kind of owning that at with the juxtaposition of understanding that it's not that you necessarily would have wanted to take heroin in different circumstances, but yes, it is you who decided to take heroin. So do you feel like in some way, just broadly speaking, like, I mean, this may be a hard question to answer, but do you feel as though some of these concepts and just philosophy in general has inspired any of these folks like to become, I don't know if better is the right answer, because I don't want to feel like I'm judging them, but to sort of make different choices in their lives, let's mm -hmm. say that. Um. I don't know is the answer to that. And part of the reason I don't know is because I don't really look for it, um, I suppose, um, in that I, I sort of understand that education can help people to change their lives. But a lot of the reasons that people in prison are socioeconomic are to do with, um, you know, a lot of the trauma they're carrying are to do with being stuck in the situation they're in without having the opportunity to break it. So I never kind of went in thinking, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to help these people change their lives. I'm going to help them no longer reoffend. You know, if that's a byproduct, then great, but I'm not, I'm not against it, you know, but it's, I suppose, I suppose, you know, like having a brother inside 12 times, you just become a bit, inured to the kind of romanticism of transforming prisoners. Um, you know, a lot of the time, you know, with, with people like my uncle, for example, I don't think he really kind of left crime as uh, crime kind of left him, you know, he kind of got too old for the game 
and he just lost that like animating spark and that's kind of the way he got out of of that um so that's perhaps quite a kind of depressive or cynical or, or, or low expectation but the expectation or, or, or the vision i do have going into prison to teach uh, philosophy is i think it's about the just a recognition and a revelation of the inner world of the people i'm talking with you know uh we don't like these are incredibly dehumanizing places places where your inner world your your kind of subjecthood is right. kind of annihilated you know like you get given a prison number you always get the same number every time you come back to prison you don't talk about um dinner time in prison you talk about feeding you know it's that's the language of cattle that's that's livestock um right. and so i guess to just have a conversation where your own inner world is kind of being attended to and nurtured and that you can believe you are a person you know in in that classroom that uh that that can be kind of tangible to you feels like enough to me I, I suppose that's when my brother was in prison that's all I kind of and I had that feeling of like god there's this bad smell and there's this something wrong like ultimately I just wanted to say to people I just wanted to communicate he's a person you know <laughs> like no. he's not he's not this like it sort of gets lost under all the stigma and demonization and dehumanization of prisoners um and it seems to have some effect in the prisons so i have an officer in one of the prisons i'm working in who came up to me on the landing uh a couple of years after i worked there and he just kind of looked at me and said like oh you're the philosopher aren't you i felt so i felt so embarrassed you know i was dressed all in black and he kind of looked looked me up and down and was like oh you're the philosopher are you it's like oh you can't hide me <laughs> you know um and i said yeah and he said i'd love to come into your classes just to uh, hear what they say i'm just so fascinated at what they say and he did and he used to come in and just you know it was a kind of a revelation for him and yet he'd been locking these people's doors for however many years so um yeah i think just to recognize like subjecthood personhood is is like that's that's the first thing you have to do you know before you can ask people to turn their lives around and yeah yeah that's interesting because uh i could tell a little bit from hearing about your experience that you know even though there there may be still that romantic notion of uh, I, I hope somebody takes away from my teachings uh, an ability to sort of radicalize their thinking change you know transform who they are and maybe reform their their life of course probably from experience it's a little of course you become a little bit more cynical about it maybe some people apply it to their life that way but it, it's seeming to me that the thing that you want people to uh, these prisoners rather to take away from your classes is that there's meaning to their there's meaning to their life there's a way for them to establish meaning while even being dehumanized while even uh, having their life regimented um are there any particular uh, teachings in particular like for some reason epictetus comes to mind but if something something else comes to you is there anything in particular that you feel was very important um that had impacted maybe some or uh more of your students um than other teachings uh, if that makes sense yeah, and I think it, Epictetus was definitely one, you know, um, the Stoics, um, you know, provide a lot of great stuff if you're living in extremists. Um, so, you know, whichever prison I'm in, I've taught a dozen prisons, but whichever one I'm in, I, I, somebody always says to me, I don't need to be free. Uh, or uh, I'm f even though I'm in prison, I'm free in my mind. And that's where you need to be free. And this is always controversial, you know, especially if someone's like day four in prison and, and they're, they've got the cold sweat and they're kind of in, a, in the kind of body shock of like, what do you mean you're free? Uh, and then you've got this old hand, you know, who's been on the wing for several years saying, oh, I'm kind of free in my mind. Um, and it's so interesting to, to discuss that, you know, uh, one man who said that to me recently said, you know, you can. I could walk out the gate and I could I could not be in prison, but I could still be not free in my mind. And that would be much worse than being in here and being not able to 
to have that inner freedom and I said, well, you know, there's philosophers who kind of said similar things to what you're saying, like uh, Epictetus, you know, and I told him about some of these ideas, like, uh, of course, Epictetus being a slave, it kind of, there's this instant connection, there's this instant kind of relatability, you know, because these people are also living under the master or the tyrant. And and that, that um, quote in Epictetus where you know his the, the master kind of uh, wrecks his leg doesn't he he breaks his leg or something and he says well you you may be able to break my leg but you can't break my my will uh, you know my 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 ability to will right um, I'm just hearing these stories you know like back like the guy I was just talking about there said yeah I get that Every day at five o'clock, the guards come and lock the door for the night, and then we're locked up for 14 hours every night. Uh, so I make sure that at five minutes to five, I just close my door myself because I'm the one who's in control, not him. And it's like in a, in a situation where, you know, you kind of have objectively in an in an objective sense lost your freedom like how do you get it back you know it's there is this like mental power this maneuvering uh cre and creativity that you get back and i i hear stuff like that all the time you know like when you're making a call to your kids or your partner or whatever or your mother or, and uh the officers will end your call at uh two o'clock so you hang up early you know, just to have that bit of dignity, just to just to have that kind of um, I'm in control of my life. Uh, I don't want them to cut off my call, you know. Um, so stuff like that, you know, sharing those kind of ideas means a lot. I don't know whether you consider Boethius a Stoic. I always kind of do just because he's so much about reframing uh, uh, your experience. You know, lady philosophy says to him, nothing is wretched. I, only thinking makes it so yeah. um and that's very attractive as well you know like uh, for people in prison i've noticed this idea that you can just look at things differently yeah so to me one of the more impactful chapters was your chapter on the ring of gyges so uh and just you know the backstory is right so you know plato talks about this ring of gyges that makes you invisible and essentially you wouldn't be punished for any of your kind of misdeeds and the question is would you still do them right and i love the prisoners responses because for them right on the one hand we're talking about free will and this understanding that you know well i you know chose to be here so in some way i could kind of choose not to be here right mm -hmm. however on this other hand right we're talking about being moral really for the sake of in some way getting late because they're telling you that well you know if i had the ring of gyges right you know essentially like yeah who cares the only reason why we're like good people is because like you know we're trying to impress these female guards and you know in the outside world uh this person told the story about being homeless and how like oh you know three guys would essentially kind of like mock him before giving him some like scraps in terms of a donation whereas if like the guy is with the woman and essentially what he would do is he would be really nice to him and he would give him a little extra because he's trying to impress the woman that he's with so again on the one hand you have this understanding that yes, I am free to do as I as I please. And you know, at some point, you know, when I'm ready, I'm going to get out of here, and I'm going to live a different life. But on the other hand, it's saying that, well, I'm kind of really only moral because of these ladies that I'm really into, right. So it's just so funny how it kind of works together, right. And I don't, and I don't necessarily think it's indicative of them as prisoners, I think it's just more indicative of who we are as humans. I think we have like these lofty perspective perspectives of ourselves. And we like to think of ourselves as being fully in control of our lives. But then on the other hand, when we think about the reasons why we do certain things they're kind of determined mm. yeah I, I think again that's another tension between the kind of high abstraction of philosophy and the kind of the kind of uh, dirty concrete reality uh that you're in in prison in that you know goodness for plato is you know uh it's something the philosopher kings could understand it's you know you you'd need to understand geometry and forms and everything whereas mm. for that guy you're talking about morality just is just something you it just comes out of the vicissitudes of your life you know just because you're begging or just because you're trying to impress a woman like it's it's 
Yeah, yeah. So with Gaiji's, the idea there was that like essentially we're determined by, in this case, sort of biology, right? That we're sort of doing or being nice for the sake of, you know, let's say for sex, right? Or let's say if we are talking about some abstract ideal, maybe it's in the long run, you know, to foster commitment, you know, marriage, etc. But the idea there is that essentially that even though we want to believe in this concept of pure free will, we're also to a good extent determined, as indicated by some of these prisoners' comments in the chapter on the Ring of Gaiji's. Yeah, and I think... I think, um, you know, I notice in this conversation we're having now, we're coming back to this like free will and determinism thing. And, um, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll uh, give them a very kind of um, an, an idea like, uh, you know, talking about Plato and goodness, and they'll bring it back down to the concrete and sort of how the world really works. And right. good is just about kind of getting girls and impressing the alpha males and all that kind of stuff um i think like i think that says a lot about um so the book is a lot about class you know a lot of it is set on a council estate um in east london and of course just in being in prison most of the people you're talking to are working class even kind of underclass um you know people have lived on the streets for years or whatever and um, I suppose it it really brought home to me what we're doing when we do philosophy. Uh, you know, I tracked that own journey in my life from a working class background to one where you're going to university and you're sitting around talking about the Greeks and all this, but kind of then going back into a very working class setting, I was teaching consequentialism with a friend of mine recently. And we're just saying, oh, you know, so a consequentialist thinks that it's the consequences rather than the action itself that kind of determines the goodness of an idea. And da, 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 da. and one of the people in the class, she just said, who even like thinks this stuff? Like who even like, like what do people just sit down and like think about it and like write about this stuff and talk about it? Like, what are they like? Who are they? What are they? Like, and um, this is something I talk about in the book is I think a big part of like working class existence and especially in prison, it gets intensified is just this kind of life is what it is. Uh, um, and it's not about the possibilities. You know, possibilities are to be kind of mentally kind of avoided in prison. They're, they're often quite painful to think about how your life could be otherwise or what's going on outside. The wall. you need to kind of keep your head in jail to a certain degree but you know it, it kind of really made me reflect on my own uh childhood and trajectory and just that i think that is the big thing you get with philosophy is this sense of like imagination that things might not be as they first seem and possibility and you know the what ifness of philosophy um which I think for a lot of people living in that very like survivalist state, it's it's very often that they just don't think like that. Um, or, you know, in certain cases, it's kind of ludicrous. It's kind of like, uh, you know, like that case with the woman I was telling you the other day, it's like, what, seriously, like, this is something you can do with life. You can, you can think in this way, like, yeah, so it's, so there's there's kind of free will and determinism going on in that like on the level of class on the level of education on the level of whether you've been introduced to philosophy or not yeah it's it's a big theme in the book you yeah. and it, oh yeah so uh, do, do you see any differences i suppose in um your dealings with male prisoners versus female prisoners it, is I mean, it, I would imagine it's probably relatively similar, but I you would obviously know from from experience. Uh, so I'm curious to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you spoke at the beginning there about how I didn't really know what I was doing when I first went into a prison, and that was a man's prison. You know, I kind of I I put red lines through on my lesson plan, trying to make it really simple, and there they are talking to me about Locke and Rousseau. So you know, I, I kind of had incompetence and failure. But when I went into a woman's prison, I really, really didn't know what I was doing. Like, I was just kind of the last person to, like, know what was happening in the room, you know, because 
it is quite different environments, especially socially, you know, like 95% of prisoners are men. And there's these great big institutions, you know, that house like 1300 people. And um, the kind of code of survival that you often find in these places are keep yourself to yourself, don't cross anyone's boundaries. The churn is very, very high. Uh, people are moving on because they're on remand or transfer or being released. So nobody really forms a connection. It's a place of real, like, detachment, you know? Like, as a teacher, you kind of, you have to meet people's eye when you talk to them, but that's kind of high stakes in that setting. Um, and I won't say it's completely the opposite in a woman's prison, because I think that's also um, uh, a difficult environment to negotiate, and there are there's a fear of violence still and all of that. Um, but often they're much smaller and there's a lot less bang up. There's a lot less just 23 hours a day in a cell. Like there's more mixing because they are on average less violent uh, prisons. Um, so they all know each other really, really well. <laughs> and, and they know each other like, the, you know, the, the, the men in my class, they might sleep eight meters away from each other on, on the landing, but they don't know each other's names because they just haven't learned. So I have to kind of create a group when they come into my class. Whereas with women, it's like, okay, the group exists. They have to kind of accept me. Um, and those dynamics run deep. You know, they've, they've lived together in a very claustrophobic space for several years. So there's loads of stuff. I just don't know what they're talking about. Loads of kind of beefs that go back like three years or something like that. Um, but um, but I mean, that's that's the main social difference between men's prisons and women's prisons. I, I think I'd add to that that every prison is different. A high security prison is different to an open prison. Uh, London prisons are really different to rural prisons where there's lots of green space, you know. Um, there's, there's prisons in London where I work where, you know, almost everyone is a person of colour. Then I'll go to a rural prison where there's lots of white working class people. Um, so there is no such thing as the prison in a way uh, that again is our kind of our, the kind of cinematic kind of way of thinking about it yeah and the another part that i really loved about the book was your tales your tales about your uncle so it's like you have these people who are currently in prison and obviously trying to find a way to survive and then you have use this sort of quirky and the kind of a bit eccentric uncle who's consistently telling you these stories about what it was like while he was in prison while even though he's out seemingly living like he's still there right kind of refusing with you refusing right to go kind of really outdoors just generally speaking right um so the part about it that i love this when you told about the story of sisyphus and so the understanding there is and just to kind of go back for our audience right sisyphus is going back to the story of camus right he's uh he's kind of punished by the gods uh because he was so rebellious and then he was kind of like told that he has to push this boulder up a hill essentially every single night the boulder rolls back down and then he has to get up and push it up again right and then so you had the story of your uncle and he was he was telling you about what it was like when that kind of happened to him with which ditch digging right so you can kind of think about it in terms of like um so you know all of us kind of get up on a you know day to day and we think about like all of these do different things and new things that we're going to do even though we do have routines even though within those routines there's still some nuance right so it's like even if i'm going to school i'm going to learn something new if I'm going to work, right? There's a sort of promotion that I'm eyeing, or uh, let's say, you know, I, I'm trying to accomplish something, right? There's sort of a, a kind of a goal somewhere toward the end of the line, right? With your uncle, as he was punished, he had to dig a ditch every single day. And then that ditch was pretty much, it was kind of, um, what's the word? They, uh, they pretty much patched it up and then he'd wake up and then he'd have to dig, dig the ditch again, right? So it's like, I love how you compared that, uh, you know, the story that you told of Sisyphus and how you compared that, which is like the general experience of what it's sort of like for prison. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what it was like, um, not only hearing about that from your uncle, but just even, even sort of relating it to Sisyphus and then sort of talking about happiness and how Sisyphus would say, and your uncle, it seemed like in some way would agree that Sisyphus would have been happy. Hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, my uncle loves to tell me stories about prison. Um, in terms of my dad in the story, you know, that's, that narrative trend is a lot about kind of shame and that kind of inherited shame um whereas story with my uncle it's my my mother's brother so they're not related it's, it's kind of about shamelessness <laughs> there's a kind of uh there's a kind of 
those chapters are such a tonic after the, you know, there's, there's a, all this exposition of shame. And then you just meet this man who's kind of almost got this like Diogenes level of just provocative, like shame, shamelessness. Um, and yeah, you know, he went to prison very young when he was 14, he's been in and out a lot. And he loves telling me prison stories. And, you know, as I said, as someone very preoccupied with prison, I love to hear them. And he told me about this time when he was refusing to march. They used to have uh, this regime for teenagers in prison called the short, sharp shock, where you would do these short sentences that were very, very punitive and it would sort of sort you out. That was the idea, but my uncle uh, had other plans. And you'd have to stand outside your um, cell at, at feeding time and they'd call you down for your dinner but you have to march you know it's it's important to remember that these settings are so based on our other similar institutions like military prisons uh, uh, like uh, you know military settings or even kind of monastic settings of course Foucault said all of this but instead of marching he would just swagger down like he just kind of as leery as you could just kind of swaggering down and so the, the officers were trying to discipline him punching him in the stomach or whatever I'm hearing this kind of, you know, horrified and very curious. And, you know, this was an age where you had National Front kind of neo-Nazi like uh, badges. A lot of officers used to wear them on their, on their chest. And because he refused to march, after a while, they just covered his plate in salt. So by the time he got down there, he had a completely full plate of salt and he had to scrape it off so that he could eat his dinner underneath it. Wow. And he just kept not marching, just defiance, you know, rebellion, that kind of Sisyphean rebellion, you know, I don't care what the gods have in store for me, fuck you, you know. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, it just escalates and escalates until he's still not marching and they put him in the seg, segregation unit. And it's seven days, you're just in a bare cell, just with a concrete ledge and a bucket to shit in. Uh, there's no books, there's no TV, there's no distraction or anything. And they wake you up in the morning, give you a shovel, you dig a hole that's eight feet deep, end of the day, you fill it back in. And he's telling me this, and a lot of the time I'm talking to him, uh, my jaw is kind of on the floor, you know, hearing this stuff. And I said, how did you not just like swing that shovel at one of those officers? You know, how did you not just lose your shit and become feral and demonic? And he said, uh, I just loved it. I just pretended to love it. And I said, what, so you loved it or you pretended to love it? And he said, yeah, I pretended to love it. I loved it. <laughs> and I really kind of, you know, he's, got, he's had a lot of experience that I can't quite relate to, you know, like he's lived in real extremists and I've had a comparatively kind of smooth life. So I'm thinking, did he love it or did he just pretend to love it? Or like, is he just pretending to me that he loved it or whatever? But my mind went to Sisyphus, you know, doing that futile task, much like digging a hole and filling it back in again. And just that defiance and that line in Camus that we must imagine Sisyphus happy as if he must pretend to be happy. And so what I do later in that chapter is I go into prison and I've got a, a bunch of uh, men and I just tell them about Sisyphus and tell them about Camus, said that Sisyphus was a hero. And they've all got differing views on that, um, which again comes back to this thing of like, there's no such thing as the prison or the prisoner. Some of them love Sisyphus, some of them think he's a pain in the ass, and they really wouldn't want him as a cellmate. Um, uh, you know, um, they're all kind of looking at him from different contexts, someone who's been in prison for three weeks, who's been in prison for almost three decades. So we get all of that reading. And then we come back to my uncle. And I think what it is, is I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, a lot of this is like testing the abstract against the concrete. You know, it's such a beautiful piece of writing that last page in the myth of Sisyphus, you know, that, that kind of turn of phrase he has about how pushing a boulder can be enough to kind of lift one's heart. Um, and I just kind of wondered like, how does that, does that just shatter on impact when it meets real life and the concrete? or how do they meet? And in my uncle's case, it felt like maybe they are meeting. Maybe that is a concrete, like Sisyphus situation. 
and what's the story there like did that kind of buy my uncle some freedom or did it kind of do something to him in the meantime did it cost him his authenticity or uh you know vulnerability or honesty on some level so i'm kind of interested in in seeing where these philosophical ideas apply and then kind of what the, the deeper implication is for them and with my uncle i think it's this thing which i kind of negotiate across the book um the wall in the head that you know in east berlin after the wall came down a lot of east berliners had this thing called the wall in the head where they just couldn't leave east berlin still and my uncle you know went in at 14 was in and out his whole life until his late 50s loves telling these prison stories you know you do build a wall to kind of protect yourself and that kind of i loved it i just pretended i loved it it's it's him kind of building a wall with the the officer it's, it's him saying you can't touch me you can't get in here and then 40 years later i'm sitting in a council flat talking to him trying to get over that wall you know and that mixture of admiration for his defiance and his sisyphean rebellion and also that like but has this put you out of reach now like can you come back from that can you step out of survival mode can you be free can you can you stop loving it you know yeah, and so it's like the ultimate expression of free will is toward the end of that story. So where they would essentially put salt and like they would just put a ton of salt into every one of his meals. Mm -hmm. And then toward the end, they eventually give up, right? And then so they bring him the meal without the salt. He looks at it and he says, where's my fucking salt? <laughs> <laughs> Like that was excellent, man. Like that was one of those, it's like those great war stories, man, that, yeah, you know, you sort of, you feel sorry for the person, obviously, because of the, def not the defiance, but because of the defenses rather. And, you know, you kind of hope that in some way that that person will be able to overcome them and live a life that's a little bit more, uh, let's say a little bit more, con I don't know if continuous is the right word, but a little more in a kind of on harmony with the rest of the world. But damn, man, that's like so admirable for him to say that, because I think the idea there is that like, with or without whatever you're doing to me, I'm okay. It doesn't matter. It, I don't, I don't need you to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. The world doesn't determine how I think. Right. And then going back to that Epicurean idea of literally, you know, you are in some way what you think or whatever, at the very least, you know, it's like um, your environment is really just like a sum of your thoughts as opposed to the, you know, kind of environment outside though yeah and i'm wondering um do any aspects of sort of uh eastern philosophical teachings sort of make any impact on, on uh the prisoners in, in the sense of maybe uh yielding to your situation as opposed to resisting or maybe being in the moment not necessarily thinking of the past or an, in anticipation of the future yeah um so in terms of like Eastern philosophies, I've, I've brought in stuff uh, from like Buddhist thought and things like that. Um, there's, it's very strict in terms of the images you can bring into prison. You can't bring any, any pornography into prison, but that just extends to all images of penetration. Um, and uh, I had like a Bodhisattva in consort with another Bodhisattva in my like, <laughs> but I bought them. And then you kind of have to cut it out before you can go into the prison. So one of those kind of ridiculous security. <laughs> um, and we discuss things like the no self idea in Buddhism, like when we're talking about identity and whether you're the same person you were yesterday. And um, yeah, there's a guy who kind of wrote about it on his hand as I was taking notes. And I said, uh, are you okay there? And he said, yeah, I'm just thinking my, my parole hearing is coming up and this whole thing about how you're never the same person that you were sounds brilliant. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, or, or Marcus Aurelius, right? Like uh, no man steps into the same river twice for he's not the same man, it's not the same river. Like, yeah, use that too yeah. in a parole hearing, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. the judge, like. But um, in terms of what you were saying there to be more precise about being in the moment, mm. um, where that really came up was in the chapter about time and we discuss uh, waiting for Godot. Uh, you know, uh, just Godot is this wonderfully absurd, dark, tragic comic play by Samuel Beckett about these two men, Didi and Gogo, who are standing next to a dead tree in a wasteland and they're waiting for a man called Godot. And 
they don't really know who he is or when he's coming or whatever, but they just keep waiting and waiting. And at the end of the first act, a child comes and says, uh, Mr. God is very sorry, but he's not coming today. He'll come tomorrow. And then it cuts. And then the second act, they just wait and wait and wait. And at the end, the child comes again and says, sorry, Mr. God is not coming today, but he'll surely come tomorrow. Um, sometimes described as a play in which nothing happens twice. Um, yeah, and so we were discussing that. And, you know, I had a guy in the room who was on an indefinite sentence. Now, the way indefinite sentences work in uh, the UK is it's known as an IPP sentence. You're sentenced for 99 years. Uh, but say after eight years, you'll get a hearing and they'll either let you out or not. Uh, and if they don't, you have to wait another 18 months and you get another hearing and they'll either let you out or not. And this, this is a very, you know, it was, this sentence was brought in to deal with the very worst kind of most dangerous types of um, people like, uh, you know, uh, serial child sex offenders and stuff like that. But where the government brought it in thinking there'd be like two, 300 prisoners on this sentence, there were 8,000. And some of them were in for like, uh, like criminal damage of less than 20 quid, you know, being given 99 years and some of them were 19 years old, you know. Wow. Uh, so it's a really, it's a huge, huge um, problem that we have here in the system and we're trying to work it out still, but it's going to take, kind of, it has taken decades and it still looks like it's going to take some time. But yeah, um, my student was uh, talking there about, Samuel Beckett waiting for Godot and he is kind of waiting for Godot you know he is just indefinitely there and yeah try again tomorrow try again tomorrow keep waiting and so we were discussing as a group like how can Didi and Gogo wait um, and you know all kinds of really interesting ideas came up in terms of um, you know whether they should just ignore the kid that was that was what this um, the guy I've just described was saying is just when the kid comes just don't Look at him don't listen to him don't get drawn in and i think that says something about what you do to hope how you have to kind of turn away from hope as a way to carry jail but mm. um a lot of it was about kind of a lot of the what i felt really like a lot of the wisdom in the room during that discussion was about being in control of time rather than it being in control of you and just living through an hour as a kind of accomplishment you know like try and get through the next 10 seconds and when you've done that try and get through the next minute and when you've done that try and get through the next minute and when you've done that see if you can get through an hour and just that level of like focus you have to have when you're doing time um so i don't know if that connects a little bit with the, the kind of mindfulness kind of being present mm -hmm. in the moment sort of stuff you were you were talking about no, for sure, for sure, because uh, waiting for that result, right, for Agato to arrive, uh, sort of an, an anticipation, right? It, it's like the story teaches a lesson, which is anticipating his arrival is what sort of causes the suffering. But spending your time however you so choose, and then Gato will arrive, may not arrive, it doesn't matter, right? It's not something that you're dependent on. Your your mood, your your uh, freedom, your uh, ability to uh, just live is not necessarily impacted by this result that you're waiting for. So it's it's an interesting uh, story in that sense. It's actually the first time I I mean I've heard stories like that, but it's the first time I've heard uh, that one in particular, and I think it teaches that valuable lesson for right. sure. But then also right to um, not to contradict what you're saying. Please, no, no, sure. no, because I really don't want to do that. Okay, because there's I think. Uh, it's sort of conditional or contextual, right? So, but I also love the idea when you bring up the actual prisoners who do lose hope, right? And what that's like for them. So on the one hand, we can say like, yes, if you're waiting for something over and over again and it doesn't come to fruition, you know, it's kind of like a waste of your time, which which is why what you're saying contextually makes sense. Because if yes, if Gadot never shows
shows up and you're consistently sort of, you know, being let down, yeah, you should probably stop hoping for it and try to adapt in some significant way. However, right, then you also have people on the other hand who are consistently feeling hopeless. And so I love that you mentioned the story of that prisoner who was essentially on suicide watch because the idea was he felt completely hopeless and there was sort of no, no kind of end in sight for him for that sentence. And he figured like, what am I doing any of this for? Mm. So sometimes when we think about hope, we only think about the negative and we think about what it's like when we're let down. However, right, one could even, I think, maybe not conclusively, but I would say significantly make an argument saying that it's actually the hope that's more important than, you know, whatever it is that comes to fruition. Because when we think about the things that we value, right, they're never that great, right? They're nice. I mean, it's sort of like you kind of have a, you kind of have like an enjoyment of whatever that thing is and you appreciate it, but they're never as good as what you kind of build it up to be in your mind, right? So when we're thinking about hope, a lot of times it's the actual hope that's sort of the kind of foundation of happiness, as opposed to whatever the result is, if you know, whatever your endeavors are. Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that on the one hand, we're saying, okay, yes, you know, you shouldn't have a rational hope in the sense of like, okay, if this kid is consistently coming back and he's consistently disappointing you, stop doing that, right? Sort of think about what's in the moment, what you can actually enjoy, right? Maybe if you're in prison, obviously think about some of the things that can make you happier here now. But then also on the other hand, right, you should continue to hope because that's the thing that's going to kind of keep you moving forward. And it's going to give you something to look forward to, because even though in some sense, there's a comfort and enjoying the now, especially in prison, you also want to get out of here someday. Right. So I, I mean, I don't, again, again, it's my first exposure to that story of, of Gatto, but yep. in, in how I interpret it is that no matter what, Gatto is coming. It's just that you keep being told, not today, not today. How do you that, know, though? How do you know he's coming? I, I, I like to make that assumption. <laughs> I actually, I'm not sure. But I, he doesn't, he, come. Let's say, let's he doesn't say, come. Let's say you do make that assumption, yeah, yeah. Though, right? That's that hope, <laughs> right? right? So hope will maybe <laughs> hope will come, but anticipation of that hope is what's causing the suffering, right? Is, does that also work? Yes. But I would also just really quickly say that when you look at the, uh, the kind of the juxtaposition of the two, it's, it's both, right? So it's not just that yeah, you know, hope leads yeah. to suffering. It's also that in some way, suffering leads to hope because the more you suffer, the more you want to hope for something better, right? So it's kind of cyclical. So it's not just like, oh, hope sucks because it leads to suffering. You can also say, well, maybe suffering sucks because it leads to hope. Or maybe you could say in some way, suffering is good because it leads to hope. So I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting very mad about it, right? No, but yeah, so, and, um, so actually, can you tell us a little bit about what can some I of the- come in on the, yeah, just on the hope thing, there's just yeah. one thing, because um, I feel like that was one of the, although in one chapter we're discussing freedom and then shame and then time and then, uh, you know, madness or whatever, it feels like hope just keeps coming back. The subject of hope and whether you should hope keeps coming back. And, you know, in the shame chapter, there's the guy who, so I say to him, you know, all these things, all these evil spirits come out of Pandora's box and then hope comes out afterwards and i say if zeus took pity on you and allowed you to put you know greed or envy or one of these evil spirits back in the box what would you put away and one of the men says hope um and i think his hope is a kind of uh the the, the conversation we have there is about uh hope versus despair i think and 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 there's another person in the group who says you kind of have to you have to keep hoping. I've tried to give it up, but it just leaves you empty and you you sort of by necessity have to hope. But later on with Sisyphus, there's a there's a guy in the room who has, it's just dawned on him really, he's in prison. For the first month or so, he's kind of pretending he's gonna be fine. And then his cellmate has been transferred and he's alone in his cell. And so nobody can kill the cockroaches anymore. And so he has cockroaches crawling on his feet in the night and his ear and stuff like that. And he's just, it's just the facade has crumbled and he can't do it. And he's, he's losing his mind. And, and he, you know, throws his head back and laughs at the Sisyphus story saying, this is bullshit. This is just macho bullshit. Like Sisyphus is, he's just, you know, he's just going to wish that this task would stop. He's just going to hope it would all end. Uh, and then another um, man steps in. He says, that's the thing about Sisyphus. He doesn't hope. He knows it's futile. That's why Sisyphus is a hero. He knows it's futile. He doesn't hope the boulder's going to stay at the top. He knows it's going to roll down. It's because he doesn't hope that he's always winning, uh, even when the boulder's running down. And so I suppose 
just hearing those conversations, you know, from these people who are, I suppose, in a real position of authority to talk about the value of hope and or or the absence of it, is it did make me think, well, is the absence of hope necessarily negative? Um, is it necessarily despair? Could could, you know, if Sisyphus's lack of hope uh allows him to kind of keep going and keep winning, then is is the lack of hope negative? Um, yeah, and 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 that's a that's a kind of a thought I'm carrying out now in another piece of writing I'm doing, which is about how much hope should we have about change in prison. You know, the abolitionist um, movement is now getting a lot of airtime compared to what it was. We're talking about reforming prison at the same time. Mm. The public are still very punitive. We're building thousands of new prison spaces here. Austerity and government cuts here have put things under a lot of pressure. So. Yeah, that's the kind of where I go with it afterwards. Yeah, and it's so and it's so interesting how they have such differing ideas, right? It's literally, I mean, Plato's Academy, where you're essentially like kind of shooting debris about these concepts. And what I love so much about it is, is that like, and look, I feel guilty because like when I started reading the book, I was like, like, I mean, honestly, what do prisoners really have to say about philosophical ideas? But clearly a lot, right? So clearly a lot, and they have a ton to offer. And so I love the fact that they give you these new perspectives that I think. I mean, a lot of people have, but it's to say that, again, that philosophy shouldn't be this thing that's solely academic, where we all need to think about these ideas, because even if they're not going to change specific, even if they're not going to change like a person's life in like, I don't know, the grand scheme of their existence, at the very least, and, and I don't mean to, I don't mean this to sound like it's the very least, but I think it's because I really think it's a really great thing. But I love the fact that in bringing philosophy to these people, you made them feel like they were human, that they deserve to be a part of the conversation. And that's to me that was something that i appreciated the most about the book yeah i think there's a guy who um has done a lot of time and a lot of time in solitary and um you know like a lot of people in prison has been through a lot and just started to doubt his existence um and one of the things he said he liked about philosophy class where he kind of told me kind of standing sideways kind of sort of half admitting it was (laughs) um it reminds me i've got a mind Mm-hmm. it's like yeah i can see how you would need reminding of that so i mean i mean um you apologize for using that phrase at the very least but i, I think that's that kind of is the terrain we're in i think with prison it's like those really those kind of really small successes are really significant in this setting um yeah if you've made someone feel like a person like yeah yeah it, it does feel And in writing the book, was that kind of your hope and what you wanted the general public to take away that these people are more so than just, you know, the, I guess the numbers on their suits, right? That they're more so than just a label prisoner. Mm. Yeah, um, I did. There's certainly like that strong humanitarian um, impulse I have. Uh, Yeah, and I guess I, I have a lot you know, to say kind of politically and ideologically about prisons, but that in a way that's like my second experience with prison. My first experience in prison is as a child before I was politicized, you know, and that's my, that's, that's kind of my first engagement. So um, I didn't want to front load it ideologically. This isn't a book that's hectoring for the abolition of prisons or the reformation of prisons or for tougher sentences. It's kind of trying to reveal um, a, a world that's obscured uh, and reveal the humanity. And within that, reveal the moral complexity because I think prison is a real, you know, it's a real f- moral puzzle um, in lots of ways, you know. Um, some, some of the people I worked with had done really, really harmful things and were really dangerous. A lot of them were, I don't think, needed to be imprisoned or even criminalized in some cases for not paying their television license or shoplifting or, you know, there's a thousand other much more imaginative ways of dealing with them. But um, that, that was my drive. It was broadly humanitarian, uh, but I, I kind of wanted to leave the reader with some work to do in terms of the moral complexity of it. I didn't want to say, oh, and here's the answer. Um, Cause 
I, that would just be dishonest of me, you know? Yeah. And that's why what you did was so admirable, man. It's like to kind of, to read it and to understand that there's this whole world of people out there who the rest of the community and the rest of sort of just society just completely shuns and shuts out. But what your book shows is that it's important to start thinking about these people and especially the way the state treats them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in terms of showing and, and coming back to that word, like revelation to, to, to reveal um, a world that's obscured. I, I think philosophy is kind of a great way of doing that. You know, sometimes when the people um, in my class ask me, like, why do philosophy? One of the things I say to them is, well, it's a way of finding out what you really think. Because um, often you don't really know. And and I found once I was putting these stories on the page, it wasn't, it was then revealing to a reader, perhaps the reader who's never been into prison, like, this world is like and actually by having a conversation about gallows humor uh and whether it's good or bad or not you can you can learn a lot about prison and a lot about the people having that conversation so there, there were, it's, it's not revelation in the sense of like the mino and recollection of an innate idea but i just mean to reveal to show to 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 excavate or something in that way you do in the very primary stages of a philosophical inquiry absolutely i love that all right alan any final questions for andy before we wrap up yes uh, if we wanted to follow you follow your work where could we find you uh so i work for the philosophy foundation in london um doing uh lots of projects with them uh especially in prisons but also teaching children and i'm on twitter uh, uh, uh at andy w philosophy and I'm always tweeting about uh, my classes and just neat philosophical books that were written in prison and stuff like that. I love that. Andy, mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on, man. This was excellent. This was awesome. Uh, in fact, the part where we got into the Easter philosophy part two was really cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoyed having you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Great. Brilliant. It's been right. an absolute pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. That's right. Take care. All right. So if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, um, TikTok. And, TikTok, and Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the, hit bell, the bell on YouTube. <laughs> and thank you so much for watching. See you next time.